Before we look at Titus together today and the text that we're in, I want us to spend a moment praying. We'll pray for our students who are away at camp, our, our children who will be going to camp this week. Um, I'd like to ask you also to pray for a group of us, a um, number of us on staff and, and some members who will be going to the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention this week, leaving, uh, be leaving tomorrow, some leaving today. Pray that God will give us wisdom and discernment as we look and see and hear and evaluate um, that God will lead us to the right sort of conversations to be had, that, that everything that's done there would accomplish his purposes and will, and, and those things that don't would be rooted out, and, and God would be glorified. Just pray for us as we try to discern our role in the convention and, and our place in it moving forward as a church and what God would have us to do as, as, um, as his ambassadors. That's our role, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're ambassadors of Christ. Pray that we would be, would be there. And I'll be speaking to this subject in much greater detail in a few weeks about just issues that affect us as Christians in the world that we live and what does it mean to be living in a modern Babylon. But many of you who are on Twitter or just social media have probably seen some of the pictures posted, Twitter uh, postings, even by our president who posted a picture of pride flag, now centerpiece at the White House with the American flag right and left subject to it, subjugated to it. It seems more and more as if we do now have a national religion, and Christianity is not it. And we'll be challenged more and more to bow to that religion. Um, we need to pray. We need to pray for those in authority over us. We need to pray that God would shift their thinking, change their hearts, change their minds, and if, if it is His will to preserve us and protect us, because we're falling rapidly into paganism all around us. And I think about that, not to be alarmist, um, not to create anxiety for us, but awareness. This is a world that we live in, and this is a world that our, our children are growing up in, your grandchildren are growing up in. And these are the pressures that they face. And we need to be able to, one, understand the times, as the Bible says in the Old Testament, that the men of Issachar did. They understood the times and knew what they had to do. We need to pray for that, that wisdom of Issachar and those men. And we also need to lock arms and be able to stand strong together. So let's pray, and then we'll look at Titus chapter 1 together. Father, may we be a faithful people to you as our king. May we live in this world as ambassadors of the one true king. May we represent you well. May we be obedient to you. May our fidelity to you be apparent in all things. What we think about the issues, the things that we value, the things that we choose to do, the conversations that we have, the choices that we make. Father, I pray that we will live lives that please and honor and reflect you. Father, as we approach this meeting of many like-minded believers in a convention of churches, we also approach this meeting with some who disagree on fundamental issues with us. Lord, grant us wisdom and discernment that we might rightly understand what we should do in these times. And Lord, how we can and should work together, or how we must distance ourselves. Father, what we must do, just grant us that sort of discernment. Lord, we pray that the name of Christ would continue to be lifted up by those who truly follow him everywhere. We pray, Father, that you would be honored and worshiped today and, and the lives that Christians leave as they leave places of worship after today everywhere. We pray for this generation, specifically our own, our own sons and daughters and grandchildren, 
Lord, that we would raise them up in a way that causes them to see you. These songs that we sing about you, God, how awesome you are, how glorious you are, that there is none like you, that you alone are God. You're the King of glory. Father, may we, may we teach that well and demonstrate that well in all of our affections for our children's sake, that they may see the same, that they may desire you, love you, worship you, serve you, be faithful to you at whatever cost. Father, I pray for our students this week at camp, that you would use this as a as a tool, an, an opportunity to teach and instruct. Lord, I pray for discernment and wisdom, even among our students, an unusual measure of, of maturity that they might sort out anything that they might hear that's contrary to what your word says, that they might learn well from you. Lord, they might be renewed in their faith, and if there's an unbeliever among them, and I would surmise there probably is, Father, I pray that you would lead them to salvation this week, repentance and faith. Father, I pray for our, our children as they head off to camp next week. Father, I pray that Zach would lead and teach them well as he teaches other students at camp as well there. And I pray, God, that you'd make his message clear and I pray you'd make the hearts ready to hear it. And I pray for salvation of children that will be there, that will hear and understand the gospel and respond to it appropriately. And Father, I pray for us as a church. Lord, it seems like there are just not any normal weeks anymore in our culture, in our country. Father, teach us how to stand. Make us faithful. Give us strength. Give us courage. Give us a great love for one another. And Father, I pray that you'd make our, our voice clear and sharp, the message unmistakable. And Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would not only protect and preserve us, but you would empower us as witnesses, as gospel witnesses, together collectively, but also individually, in all the conversations that we have and the questions that we have. The disagreements people might have with us, Father, I pray that you would use us all as ambassadors of your kingdom, of your glory, as messengers of the gospel. Father, speak to us today. Speak to us through your word. Make us teachable, Father. Do that for us. Make us teachable so that we respond rightly. Do something in us today, Father, that glorifies you and in turn blesses us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years... Over the, the decades, perhaps, maybe over the centuries, I don't know. I'm not a philosopher. It seems like several elements, a number of critical elements of Orthodox faith, what I would call normal Christianity, a number of elements have changed. Maybe it's unique or maybe it's more particular to the American context of Christianity that we've personalized it. Uh, we've, we've privatized it. More and more, it seems like American Christians, particularly Christians like us, are disconnected from the larger community of faith, disconnected from the role and responsibility that God has uniquely given churches, not established by people. That's such a myth today. This is all man-made. The church is a man-made institution. I don't need the church. I'm not under any authority of the church. I'm not responsible to the church. When in fact, the church is by God's design, not a part of God's design, not an auxiliary to God's design, but an essential component of God's plan for every believer. And we become more disconnected in our relationship to other believers, thinking that people have no say in our life. We don't have to answer to anybody but, but ourselves, to our own feelings, our own emotions, our own, our own consciences. 
I wrote this statement down because I couldn't think of a way to make it any clearer. We're largely becoming a loosely affiliated gathering of independent practitioners of a highly personalized and customized quote-unquote faith, picking and choosing what we like, agree with, or feel good about, while simultaneously rejecting anything contrary to our preferences. And so we treat church just like we would treat books on a bookstore shelf or, or podcasts as tools, a cafeteria, products, services that are meant to, to benefit me as, as I see that I need them in my own personal spiritual journey. And all the while, we don't accept intrusion into our domain of personal autonomy by any institution like a church or any individual telling us things like, hey, that's not right. Or, hey, that's not true. Or, or worse yet, the unspeakable. Hey, that's a sin. And you need to repent of that. We hear phrases, and sometimes, God forbid, we even use them, only God can judge me. Because at our hearts, too many of us feel like we're not answerable to anybody. And as a result, we're fractured. We're isolated. We're cut off, in fact, from the means by which God not only instructs his people, but he protects his people. Proudly and stubbornly, we resist the very means by which God sanctifies us and the means by which God perseveres us. And as a result, we're all weaker for it. So when I look at a passage like Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 15, I don't see it as merely a review of things we've already heard. Okay, we get this, elders, we see it. But there's a much bigger issue at stake here. And the issue is this, the normal Christian life, it may not be the typical one, it may not be the ordinary one, and it may not be the one you've experienced. But when I say normal, I mean biblically normal, and I mean historically normal. In terms of orthodoxy, normal. The normal Christian life is an answerable life. You weren't meant to be independent and autonomous, answering only to your idea of God or your opinions about God or your personal interpretations of what God has said in his word. There's something bigger and more important at play here that God has given us. And we see this on display in Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. So pick up with me there. This is why I left you in Crete. <clears throat> this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's something to be known for, right? your whole culture to be identified as liars, beasts, and gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I'll come back to that in a moment. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. All right, so let's break this down for a moment. And I'm going to do this part intentionally quickly, not because it's unimportant, but because I think we've covered this pretty well. And if you want to hear more about teaching on elders, we cover this in 1 Timothy, and I would reference you back to some of those messages. If you're new to us, you can go on the website. You can pull those up quickly and easily and see what the Bible teaches about Timothy, uh, about elders in the book of Timothy. Paul, who wrote that to Timothy, Paul is now writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Titus, similar themes on the idea of elders with them only briefly under this theme. Elders are necessary and normal in every church. I mean, this is clear in Scripture. We find this everywhere. In the New Testament, the words elder, shepherd, pastor, bishop, overseer, all those words are used interchangeably. And they're all used in the context of a local church office with very clear functions. We see this in Acts chapter 20. Paul meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus, verse 17. Several verses later, Paul tells these same elders, watch over themselves and the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, which is another translation for the word bishop. In the next sentence, he exhorts these elders, these overseers, to be shepherds, that's the same root word that we get pastors, of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In the space of 12 verses, we see three words interchangeably used, elder, overseer, shepherd. And so what Paul tells Timothy, uh, sorry, Titus, I'm still in Timothy mode from last month. What Paul tells Titus is this, put things in order, put what remained in order. What is he saying there? He's saying there's a church that's been established here. The gospel has been preached. People have responded to the gospel. You have Christians here now. Okay, now let's form what's happened here into a church. Now this is an aside to the points that I'm making today, but look at the biblical means of church planting. How do you plant churches? You make disciples, and when you make disciples, you get churches. Too often today, we try to do it in verse. We try to make a church that we might get disciples. So we put up a sign, we rent a space, we start trying to gather people, and we hope out of those gathered people, somehow those people might become a church, but that's never been the biblical means. You preach the gospel, you tell people about Christ. As people come to Christ and they begin to be gathered, you do what the rest of the Great Commission says. I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's called discipleship. And as that begins to happen, you form a church. And a church, when it's being put into order, will have more than one leader in place there. So he says, put into place elders, that's plural, in every town, singular. So a huge task that Paul assigned to Titus. As the church is blossoming now, blowing up in this pagan place, Crete, this place where everybody is a glutton and, and a liar, um, you, you plant these gospel-centered churches with elders in place. The normal patterns have more than one. Again, I reference Acts chapter 20. Luke records Paul sending for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, in Ephesus. At the end of Paul's first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had elders, plural, elected in every church, singular. That's Acts 14.23. James says in verse 14 of chapter 5, call the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to pray over someone who's sick. Peter wrote as an elder to the elders, plural, among you, singular. Paul, Philippians 1.1, greets the bishops, plural, and the church, singular, at Philippi. In Acts 20.28, 20, 
He exhorts the elders of the church at Ephesus to be bishops, plural, to the flock, singular. And then, of course, we've seen in Timothy already, 1 Timothy 4.14, he references the elders, plural, who direct the affairs of the church, singular, chapter 5, verse 17 of chapter 1. And in today's text, we see the same. Appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. So this is what God intended. And this is how God was putting his churches in order. So when you think about God's plan for the structure and leadership of the church, for the stability of the church, primarily for the, the wholesome teaching of the church, it is to put in multiple elders in every place. That was his plan. Now, there's a requirement in the text that moves us from the question of what, which is answered by elders, to what kind or what sort. The requirement of blamelessness. Listen to what he says again. He says, I appointed you, I told you to put what remained in order, appoint elders in every town, if anyone is above reproach. So think of this umbrella term of above reproach, and then in some specific areas of above reproach. What does he mean? The characteristic above reproach is, is a general heading for all the things that follow under it. So in other words, a man is known to be above reproach in regard to these sort of relationships that we're going to see here in just a moment. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, that the person is morally perfect. It doesn't mean that there's nothing about them that could ever be wrong. Does this person have a bent towards faithfulness towards Christ? Are they repentant when they fail? Are they guided by the Scriptures? Do they show a faithful life in these areas? I love this statement by Kevin DeYoung. He says, The idea behind above reproach and well thought of that we see in other texts is largely the same. The elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, etc., must live a life of Christ-like character and virtue that is not easily refuted. Not easily refuted. And again, these qualifications aren't like a threshold that you have to meet. It's a condition of life that you live in constantly, over and over, in these three arenas. Okay, Three arenas, marriage and family life. In marriage and family life, the question is, is he faithful? Is this a faithful husband? And by the way, you'll see again and again that these are he statements. It's always been God's design. It's consistent throughout Scripture. It's not rooted in one location, like Paul telling Timothy in Ephesus. We see the pattern in the New Testament everywhere, regardless of location, that leadership in the church, the teaching, pastoral, overseeing, bishoping, eldering leadership of the church is male, always. And it's not rooted in culture. It's rooted in creation. It's rooted in God's design. So when we see these modern interpretations that say, well, that was just addressing an issue specific to the sort of people or the sort of worship that was happening in a place like Ephesus and the Diana worship, et cetera, and the goddess worship, et cetera, that's a falsehood. That's a fabrication. That, that's a modern reinterpretation of a position that the church has held for 2,000 years. It's clear in Scripture, rooted in God's good design, not in any local context of how he wants his leadership to be. So in marriage and family, is his marriage a model of faithfulness and integrity? Has he raised his children in the faith? And the context would suggest that he is talking about children who live in the home. It's hard to assign responsibility for an adult, for the behaviors of adult children. And we recognize that sometimes adult children will even stray. But the idea is in their home, are they rebellious? Are they insubordinate? Have they heard and responded to the gospel? Is there a, an accusation that can be made of a man who can't lead his home well, so how could he possibly lead a spiritual family that's much larger well? Marriage and family life. Second arena is in his character and in his conduct. Does he practice self-control? I mean, does he master his own self? 
Does he control his own desires? Does he give evidence of a new life? Is he under the control of the Holy Spirit? And he specifically mentions five negatives, these five huge areas of temptation. How does he fare in these? As an example, I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but I think it's a representative list. How does he fare in these areas of strong temptation? Pride, temper, alcoholic drink, power, authority, money. Pride, temper, drink, power, money. These huge temptations that affect all of people. Anyone who has the ability to abuse those things. Someone in ministry has to have the right handling of all of those things and be under the authority of God's word and control of God's spirit. And then the positive sides of this. Is he hospitable? Does he like to open up his home to people? Is he generous with himself and his belongings? Does he love what's good? Is he sober and sensible? Does he live a disciplined lifestyle? Is he upright in how he deals with people? Is he exemplary in his devotion to God? Can you tell this person loves the Lord, loves his word, loves God's people, character and conduct? Which brings me to number three. The third arena is doctrine and teaching. And doctrine and teaching, is he sound in his doctrine? And when we say sound, not can he make a clever case for what he believes or a compelling case even for what he believes. But is it rooted in the historicity of the scriptures? And is it rooted in the, trans, the, the understandings, the interpretations of scriptures throughout the years? Is he sound? Is he rooted in the word? And not only is he rooted in the word, does he hold to it firmly? Or is this someone who flip-flops? Is this someone whose position changes? Is, is this someone who goes with the tide of the current that we're in? Is this someone who's overly affected by culture and cultural norms? Or they say, no, this is what God's word says. This is what God's people have believed for centuries. This is what I hold to be true. Is he able to teach these things? Is he able to make them plain and clear? And is he able and willing to use God's word to correct error? To instruct people in the truth? Because that's the primary ministry of any elder. So this is your big review. The ministry of the word, that's primary so he says, here's what's normal, here's what's expected, here's what's going to protect and preserve the church that's growing there, put elders in place, put these sorts of elders in place, and this is what these elders are to do. And the answer, why put elders, put in order with elders, elders who are above reproach, why do this, is answered in verse 10. And this is where I really want to drill down this morning for a few minutes. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Okay. It's not that this is just the right way of doing things. This is the absolutely essential, necessary way of doing things because this is what every church and every Christian is going to face. You're going to face the challenge of many who are insubordinate to the truth, Speak things that sound good, but like cotton camp candy or theologically vacuous and worthless, sweet-sounding, but of no value to you, and they're going to be deceiving you. So elders are to be put in place to address these things. There are many among us, many that would affect us, and they have to be dealt with correct, correctly. And the many that he's referring to are many in the church. So... Now you've got a picture here. God has put a system in place that's normal, put these things in order, 
the normal church. He's put leadership in place, a specific sort of leaders in place, because there's a need there for the people in those churches to be answerable. Answerable to the truth, answerable to the church as a whole, answerable to each other. But that flies in the face of what's normal now, and I use the word normal in my air quotes here, which I hate air quotes, but normal to us. Because most of us don't like to be answerable. Again, my fear is that far too many of us, and even if it's just subconscious, it's still real. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me? Who are you to correct me? And we're losing something significant in terms of our own spiritual health, our own ability to grow spiritually, and our ability to persevere, to stick with this for a long time. So I made a list. Based on this text, five things that every Christian needs. But I fear that too many Christians resist. Five things that every Christian needs. But I fear far too many Christians resist. Now before I go into this list, I want you to know that all of this has at its foundation, underlying them all, is the expectation that we see repeated in Scripture over and over and over again to love one another. The defining mark of the church, the defining mark of God's people is its love for one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Absent love, this, this, this list will descend into to pettiness. This list will de defend, descend into just being quarrelsome, judgmental, arrogant, and it'll be ineffective. But based on a foundation of love, if I love you like I'm supposed to, as a member of my own, my own body, like I love myself, as a member of my own family, like I love my brother or, or my sister or, or my mother or my father, as a member of the body of Christ, like I love Christ himself, the head, as a part of the bride of Christ, like I would love the very bride of my Messiah, if we love each other well, then these things begin to make much more sense, and we see them not as optional, but as, as absolute. So let me give you a list. Number one, every healthy Christian needs accountability. Needs accountability. Who do you have in your life that knows you and knows where you struggle, knows what you need, Knows where temptation is affecting you. Knows where, where doubts are creeping in. Knows the challenges that you're facing so they can pray for you and help you. In the New Testament, we see relationships between believers based on this sort of love, this, this accountable love, the sort of love that calls people to speak to one another with honesty, like Ephesians 4.25. Not brutal honesty. Not always trying to call each other out the sort of honesty that calls us to look at each other as brothers and sisters that we're trying to help. We're trying to encourage. We want to see them finish well. The sort of helpful truthfulness that we find like in Romans 14, 13. At the heart, this accountability is us submitting to one another in love as we submit to Christ. How can I help you and who will I allow to help me? Because we know that Satan and his work flourishes best in darkness and in secrecy. And one of the ways we can war against that for our own sake and for the sake of others is in accountable relationships. Accountability. 
But just because it's healthy for us does not make it easy for us or even natural for us. So you have to choose these things that are outside of what's comfortable to you. Accountability, you need this. You're in the most vulnerable position. Even when you gather in a room full of people, when nobody really knows what's going on with you except what we can see. And in our limited interactions with one another, we're able to put on, for the most part, for the most time, a facade of what we want people to see. Most of us are pretty good at creating an image that we want to convey. But when we let people underneath, what we're doing is we're taking away one of the strongholds of the enemy, enemy, secrecy and darkness, those things which are hidden. And for our sake, for our spiritual sake, accountability. Number two, every Christian needs authority. Authority. And I know I'm speaking against the cultural norms of today. It's as if there were a, a line of authority. If there were lines of authority given, and we know that the ultimate authority is God himself. And the authority, what God wants for us, expects of us, he gives in his word to us. So God and God's word, we understand that scripture better as we submit to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates that for us. So God and his word is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But if we cut out two other elements in God's plan for both accountability and authority, we're doing great harm to ourselves. And that's the church as a whole and other believers. But it's sort of our modern understanding of Christianity. We just cut those out of the equation altogether. And we say, no one can tell me what to do. No one has any authority over me. I'm independent and autonomous in the exercise of my faith. I only come here for what you can offer me, not because I've submitted to you in any way. But that's not a picture of Scripture. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, you see this verse on the cover of your bulletin today. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Two words, obey and submit. But here's the reason why, because they're keeping watch over your souls. Not because they're power tripping, because the elders are told not to do that. We're not supposed to exercise authority like the pagans do, like the Gentiles do. And our authority is not by position. It's not even by it's not even by your vote of empowerment towards us. It's by the word, by the scripture. They're keeping watch of your souls as those who have to give an account because we're accountable. We're accountable to God for what we do with the people that God has entrusted us with. That's one of the reasons here at Calvary we take very seriously the issue of membership. It's a very daunting thought. It's a, it's a harrowing thought even, not humbling, harrowing thought to think that I and other elders at Calvary will give an account for hundreds of people that we don't even know because we can't find them, we can't reach them, they're not part of our fellowship in any meaningful way. Yet they want to hang on to some semblance of church membership when it's not biblical. We have to give an account for what we're doing with you and saying to you, leading you and teaching you. And he says to you on the other side of that equation, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you're resistant to the leadership that God has put in place all the time, if you complain about it all the time, if you're unswayable by it, if you think maybe even subconsciously that it doesn't apply to you, then it's of no benefit to you. And the point of this is for your benefit. John Piper interpreted this text impartial like this. He said, be a swayable person. Be a person ready to learn, ready to be taught, ready to be led not eager to kick and rebel against anybody that calls you to do something at church. And I would say, or that 
calls you out or that corrects you or that challenges you. To not be distrustful, but have a predisposition towards teach me, show me, help me, lead me. Authority. But more and more, again, we've cut that out. So the church really has no say. So when someone comes in for counseling, for instance, and, and they're talking about their marriage and they want to divorce, and we say, but the Bible says, and then they reject that. You can't tell me. You have no authority over me. Or in a conversation that you have with a friend and you're trying to show them what the Word says. But that's just your opinion. Or who are you to say? Or the tired, tired, tired but you're not perfect either, right? I'm, I'm sure you've sinned somewhere too. And so we reject and we refute and we miss out on the benefits of any sort of authority being applied to us. God created us to be under authority. And it's not just that authority. You say, well, I'm just under authority to God. You're not independent in this. You're part of a body. We're connected now. We're part of each other now. We're in it together to finish well together. Authority. Number three, clarity. Every healthy Christian needs clarity, clarity in what you believe. As I'm teaching in our uh, Membership Matters class, and we teach about a confession of faith that our elders hold to and present to the church to affirm as a confession of faith, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, we tell them this is not the whole boat. This is, our boat is the Bible. But this is an anchor to keep us tethered to what we believe the Bible says, because when we say I have no creed but the Bible, everybody believes the Bible says something and we don't all agree. Not every Christian agrees with what the Bible says. So it's helpful to have statements that say this is what we believe the Bible says. The Bible is ultimate always and we're always reforming to it, making sure that we have adjusted us to it, not adjusted it to us or to our times or to our culture or to our prevailing opinions. But we need clarity on this and this is part of the passage that we see here in this text. He says, you need to be putting in place, putting in order these elders. This is what elders need to be doing. They need to be able to give sound instruction, doctrine. They need to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Because there's so much bad teaching. There's so much false teaching. There's so much confusing teaching. And it's not enough anymore to just simply say, well, you know, I, just, I love God, love people. Or, you know, I believe the Bible. What do you believe about the Bible? More than ever, the times in which we live require clarity. Clarity. Without that clarity, we devolve, we digress, we compromise, we concede, we move away from, we drift. That clarity is absolutely essential to what we do, and it's absolutely essential to the role that we have. I'll I just give you a quick example of how the Bible is not subject to your independent, personal opinions about it, your emotions about it. The Bible is not subject to your private interpretations of it or how it makes you feel, applications of it. I'll give you an example. We were in a coffee shop yesterday, and, and there was a group of people having a Bible study. Look, they were in their 20s, about six people having a Bible study. And I was trying to overhear, but I was put in an uncomfortable position because, honestly, I didn't know what my response ought to be. Like, I don't know any of the people here, and I didn't know if I should, like, try to interject myself into this conversation that was beginning to go off the rails, or if I should just pray for them, or just step away because they're driving me insane. But they were having some sort of Bible study, and the guy walked up, and he was sharing something with them. And I know a little bit of him, and, and I'll just say this, I'll, I'll say this as gently as I can, his leanings towards Pentecostal nonsense. 
And he steps up to the group and he says, I'm going to show you a verse that's going to blow your mind. I'm going to show you a verse. Y'all ready for this? It's going to blow your mind. Turn to Daniel chapter 10, 10. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, Daniel 10, 10. I think I know the context sort of, but I don't know Daniel 10, 10 exactly. Here's the verse. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And then he began to talk about some supernatural experience of a hand touching him and setting him trembling on his hands and knees. If you read Daniel chapter 10, it's Daniel getting a vision that God gave him of an angelic messenger and in his vision of the holiness of God and, and all the things that God is revealing in that moment, the angel touches him and he trembles. You can't read a passage like that and say, okay, God, I'm Daniel now. Send an angelic messenger to touch me or somebody's going to touch me and it's normal for me to tremble on my hands and knees. That's a statement of a vision Daniel got and you're not Daniel. And it doesn't apply to you. You can read it and learn some lessons about God's holiness. But it doesn't mean that this is what God intends to do in every time, in every place, in every person, in every prayer. And this verse is not about your private, personal experience with God. And we can't handle Scripture that way. And healthy Christians are under the authority of elders who handle the Word rightly and teach for clarity. And you should push for clarity. What do you mean by that? Well, what does that mean? Or how does that apply to us? Clarity, number four. Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. Under clarity, look at today's text for a moment. Again, there are many that are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Okay, so the circumcision party was teaching something that may sound to our ears like, eh, I mean, it's debatable, right? Or maybe not debatable, man. I mean, I know they're wrong, but it's not a big deal. This is a, a minor issue. But no, it's a major issue. Because what the circumcision party was saying is this, yes, we believe in Jesus, we, yes, we, we believe that stuff that Jesus did. Yes, we believe crucifixion, resurrection. But if you want to be saved, it's Jesus plus circumcision. You can't be saved by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. It's Christ plus this act. And as soon as you add anything to the gospel, it's no longer good news. It's no longer what has God done in his infinite mercy and grace to save me. It's what do I do myself to save me in addition to that? It compromised the whole gospel. And in addition, as we see in later part of this text, their interpretation of how you're supposed to live was very skewed. If we abstain from certain things, that'll make us holy. If we don't eat certain things, that'll make us holy. If we do certain acts, that'll make us holy. Meanwhile, they're like those prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Their lips are near me, but their hearts are far from me. And Paul says to them that they're deceived they're deceived and they're, and they're deceiving. So what's the right response to those who are teaching wrong, believing wrong, applying Scripture wrong? What's the right response? Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What should we do when we find error? We should rebuke error. It's probably what I should have done yesterday. I probably should have sat down and said, listen, let me tell you, that's not true. That's not right. And that brings me to number four. Every Christian, every healthy Christian at some point or another needs correction. As much as we celebrate Satan's favorite attribute, pride, pride is the downfall of many. And it leads to the downfall of all who embrace it. Pride goes before destruction. 
And in our pride, sometimes we're hostile to correction. We don't want to be told no. And we, we know our non-Christian friends don't want to be corrected by the Bible. They don't want to be corrected according to what God's Word says. We even see some Christian leaders today, prominent Christian leaders, saying we shouldn't even start from the point of saying what the Bible says, that that's not a good apologetic. I, I disagree wholeheartedly. I think the best theology you can ever practice is to understand what the Bible says and be able to take it and apply it in any situation. The Bible says that's the best corrective, best apologetic, best theology you're ever going to practice is what the Bible says, even with your unsafe friends. But we know that they're resistant to it. But unfortunately, many Christians are resistant to being corrected. And that's sad because Proverbs 10.8 says the wise of heart will receive correction, will receive it. So loving one another in the church well means that we're going to take responsibility for, to some degree, each other's growth and holiness, their understanding of the truth, their application of it. Consider all the implications here of Galatians 6.1 for a moment. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, which makes perfect sense. But brothers, it's the appeal to family, it's the appeal to love. When you see a, a brother or sister struggling or sinning or believing wrongly or deviating from the truth, you look to restore them, but you restore them with correction and teaching, all done in a spirit of love. How you do that, of course, is vital to how it's going to be received. Any of you, um, as parents, have learned ways that you can uh, affect correction well in ways that you can't. Um, public correction usually goes over poorly. That's probably why I didn't want to challenge a guy right there in his own coffee shop, but, um, but correction is necessary. Sometimes private, sometimes correction is not well received at first. But just because it's not well received doesn't mean it shouldn't be well given. And it doesn't mean that after being thought on, after, the people won't respond to it rightly. Sometimes it takes a little while for it to settle in. But correction is necessary to say, but that's not what the Bible says, or that's not what that text means, or look at the whole context of that, or that's not consistent with all the pattern of Scripture, or do you know no Christian has believed that for 2,000 years, and that's a modern reconstruction or deconstruction of the faith. Correction. How willing are you to receive any correction? How willing are you to see, receive any correction? whether it's from a sermon, which is not to say my sermons are immaculate or that I have any sort of perfection in them, but all of us should be willing to receive correction, even sometimes with people we disagree with. I was having a conversation with another pastor, and he was talking about, in our own convention, this, this difference between generations, it seems, and this younger generation seems to have, in general, this, this arrogance about them, this superiority that we know better than all of our predecessors, and we receive no correction or direction, while the older generation seems to have a, an attitude more of, of deference and respect and humility even. That even if you're listening and hearing, you might say, I disagree with that, but I can hear you on this, and I, I can spit out the bones, and I can show some wisdom and some discernment. All of us need to have a position of correctability, teachability. And here's the last one. And I don't suspect you'll like this one much. But sometimes, sometimes it's necessary 
and it's part of our health and the development, and it's because we love one another, because we want people to follow Christ faithfully, represent Him accurately, finish successfully, that sometimes it's necessary in the lives of Christians that we experience chastisement. Chastisement. Now, chastisement is different than correction. Correction is instruction. Here are the changes you need to make in what you think, what you believe, what, what you're doing. Correction is like a redirection from error to, to bring someone back. I'm trying to improve or rehabilitate or, or restore. Chastisement is stronger. Chastisement is a reprimand. And it carries with it the idea, the connotation of discipline. Now, just for time's sake, I, won't, I don't have time to go into great detail, but I want you to understand, I'm making a distinction here between the chastisement of the Lord. That's a given. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He chastens as sons. The Lord does chastise us. Chastisement is discipline. It's consequence to behaviors, to actions, to beliefs, to attitudes. It's the work of God, like the perfect parent, to restore us. To put in effect a consequence that would turn us from the direction we're going, change us from the attitude that we're having, um, and restore us, bring us back to Him. It's parenting, it's, it's discipline, it's a context. For us, I'm talking about the chastisement we necessarily have to give sometimes to one another. I'm talking about consequence. Again, the purpose is restoration, the basis is love. But the idea here is acting, enacting something that says what you're doing is not okay and you and I can no longer continue together as if it is. We can't act like this is normal or acceptable. Well, one commentator called this holy ostracizing. Holy ostracizing. It's like a parent disciplining a child for his good until the rebellion ends, until obedience is restored. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Okay, see that holy ostracizing? Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Did you catch that? To the church, Paul's writing a letter to Christians in the church regarding the behavior of other people who identify as Christians and saying if their lives look like this, don't have anything to do with them. Don't hang out with them. Don't treat them like everything is fine with what you're doing and how you're living. Don't even eat with them. If a person is living in open, unrepentant sin and they claim to be a Christian, then we collectively and you personally to stand away from that person. Lest we give the message to one another that sin really doesn't matter. And we're really okay with this. And we just give lip service to the idea of holiness. We give lip service to the idea of faithfulness. And if we approve of this, and we send that message to the world, Christians approve of this, have we not lost the moral standing that is necessary for a right presentation of the gospel? Because the gospel begins with who God is and what we've done against a holy God and our sinful condition that requires repentance and the good news that God gives to those who repent. And so when we act like nothing is there and we act like 
It doesn't matter when we've not changed that relationship or interactions with them in any way. There's been no chastisement. We have said to them, it doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. All of this that I'm saying to you is under this contextual statement. And I take you back to the beginning of Titus. Titus 1, verses 1 and 2. All, all for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Why are these things there? Why is a church to be ordered like it is? Why are leaders to be put in place like they are? Why is false teaching to be corrected, sometimes harshly? Where we're not so concerned about tone, we're concerned about content. We're not con so concerned about emotions or reactions. We're concerned about accuracy and truth. We're not so concerned about their response, but God's. Why? Why should we love each other this way? Why do we need accountability? Why are we to be under authority? Why is clarity on what we believe and teach necessary? Why correction sometimes? And why even chastisement? All for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. If our approach to these things, if our approach to answerability is for the sake of one another, how healthy would we be? How good would that be? How strong of a church would that be? That we are in it for the sake of each other, for the glory of God, and for the hope of eternity. That's my prayer for us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges in it. I pray even today and that our response to this, what we've heard, would be to think on deeply and to consider carefully, to, to pray for wisdom and discernment and to ask you, even now, even now as we sort through this, Father, is it me? What are you saying to me? What should I do, Father? What is my right response? Father, I pray that we could be this sort of people increasingly so for each other. That we would be these sorts of people that see the need for, to live an answerable life. That we're accountable to one another as brothers and sisters in the same family as ambassadors of the same king, as members of the same body. They were accountable to, to your church as a whole, and there's wisdom there, not in one domineering or dynamic pastor figure, leader who, who speaks the authority, but in the counsel of several, of a plurality of, of godly men who hold each other accountable and are accountable to you and to live under the authority of your word and search it and study it to teach it. Father, I pray that we would understand that the enemy is a clever enemy. And he seeks ways to destroy us. He seeks ways to pull us away from the flock. Make us more vulnerable to the, to the wolves. He... he he seeks ways to disconnect us from the loving care and concern from other brothers and sisters. He, he seeks ways to divorce us from the bride that is his church. He seeks ways to steal from us, to destroy us, to kill us. That's, that's his aim. But you, you promise life, life to the full, an abundant life. A good life, a, a healthy life. Father, may we yearn for that. 
May we live that. May we do that. May we be that sort of person. May we be those sort of people together. May we be that kind of church. As you pray as you, where you sit this morning, ask God what your response ought to be. What step you'll take. What will obedience look like for you in this area? What will, what will obedient application look like? How can you honor God best in what you do next? And how can you demonstrate that defining mark of his people in loving each other well? How can we do that? And pray that we would take the necessary steps, the right steps together. If you're not a believer here this morning yet, I want to offer you this hope, this, this good news. I alluded to the spiritual warfare that is real in this world. There are but two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of death and the kingdom of life. The kingdom ruled by Satan, whether you acknowledge him or not. And the kingdom of God in Christ. And one day these kingdoms will be so visible, so clear, when our king returns and every knee bows, every tongue confesses, and we see Jesus unveiled, unhidden, undeniable. You'll see that all these things are true, verified before your very eyes if you're fortunate enough to live to see them, I guess. I invite you into that kingdom that's real and true and good. To know God who made you, loves you, wants to save you, wants to reshape you, wants to give you a life by His design. Pray that you'd respond to Him today by faith. Choose Him, trust Him. Respond to Him today. If He's calling you, say yes to that call. And don't deny him. Christian, let's be the church. Let's be what God calls us to be. Father, move us to your will. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Draw us to you. Convict of sin even now by your Holy Spirit. Work in our hearts a desire to live righteously. And by your Spirit's power in us, that mighty power working in us, may we do it. May we do that which pleases you. I pray this in Jesus' name.